Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. By the way, uh, uh, you'll have to follow along just by my voice. Uh, I guess we haven't uh, uh, had anything for the the screens, but um, uh, try to do the best I can to emphasize the words that uh, uh, we have to to write down. Um, Imagine a young child, and this really isn't that difficult to imagine in our, in our uh, circumstances, uh, uh, but imagine that young child whose daddy is f- far from home, say in military service, and particularly during this Christmas season, Think about that child looking at the, the picture that uh, maybe his mom has on uh, the, the counter or something. And, and he's looking at that picture of that father whom he loves. During this Christmas season, what one thing would you say that child wants more than anything else. Daddy to come home, right? Daddy to be with him. And, you know, we praise the Lord for the technology that, uh, you know, now the, the soldiers on in service can get on Skype and you can have a, a face-to-face being tens of thousands of miles away, you can still talk to your loved one, and that's, that's a great thing. But as great as that is, how much better is it to have your loved one right next to you, right in front of you? And all the pictures and all the descriptions and all the, re- the, the fond remembrances that, that uh, we might... Uh, have of that loved one do not compare with a hug with interaction face to face with that individual and that is what I want to focus on today what does it mean for we as children to have our God with us God taking on human flesh. What got me started on this is uh, last week, thinking about, uh, uh, we, we sang a song, Emmanuel. And it got me thinking about what, what, does, what all does this mean? God with us. What all changes did this bring about? What all, I mean, 
we could, under, we could see what, what the Word of God says about and descriptions of God and, and, and understand those things, but how much better is it to have God in the flesh with us? And for, particularly for those few privileged to have, as John says, uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have seen with our eyes and our hands have handled, of uh, the word of life. I mean, to have touched the Lord Jesus. And as we sang this morning, Mary, when you, when you kiss the face of your late little baby, do you understand that you're kissing the face of God? But just think of this. You know, we don't have the Lord with us physically right now. But you know, there's a special blessing for us that those who actually touched him and saw him don't get. What did the Lord say? Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believed. Because, Thomas, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believe. So there's a special blessing for us. But what does this mean? And, and as the more I thought about this, the more, the more it, it, it was just astounding. We, there is so much that we can't even begin to conceive of. And Jerry mentioned a little bit about that or referred to that in, in his opening remarks. So much in the, in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus that we can't even begin to conceive of. But what we can is something that I'd like to focus on today. And the change in Jesus' state from in glory to here on earth is just sort of mentioned here in Philippians chapter 2. Verses 6 and 7. We'll just read this real quick. Uh, Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Now I have... Yeah, on my notes here, uh, it's naturally I, I do prefer to preach out of the King James, and it says, "Who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God." That phrase "in the form of" is is not talking about shape, but as the NIV or, or uh, New American Standard seems to focus on, is it's talking about his essence, the very Basic nature. And what Paul is saying is, before the incarnation, Jesus Christ existed in every essence as God. Paul says in Colossians 2.9, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Everything that God is... Christ was in the flesh.
The writer of Hebrews states that Jesus is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. In other words, Jesus is what is seeable of the unseeable God. He is the expression, the visible sight of God. Jesus himself said to Philip, Have I been so long time with you, Philip, and you still do not know me? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Just take a look, Philip. I'm God. Jesus is, and, and just, try, just try to fathom this, that there was, there was Jesus eternally existing and now taking on human flesh, just like you and me. That eternal existence in the womb of Mary. That eternal existence being born and cradled and growing up in this world. That's, that's really beyond our comprehension because we don't even know everything that there is to know about either state. But let's think about God for a little bit. What is God like? What are some of the characteristics that Jesus participated in or, or, and had in eternity? Well, first thing I can think of is His transcendent glory is so great that we can't even look at Him and live Moses asked to look at his glory, and God obliged, but only when Moses was fully protected, as it says, he was in the cleft of the rock, and Jesus covered him as with his hand to protect him, and then only lifted his hand after God had, God's glory had passed, and he saw the radiant outshining after he had passed. That's in Exodus chapter 33 and verse 22. Also, we have the very statement of God in Exodus 33 chapter, or verse 20. No man can look at God and live. That is a, an awesome thing. There are a few folks who have had in the Bible that have had some experience with seeing some manifestation of the glory of God other than Moses? How about Isaiah? First of all, let me ask you, what happened to those people? 
Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5. Isaiah says, In the year the king Uzziah died, I, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And he goes on to describe the throne room of God. And what was Isaiah's response? Woe is me, for I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. All of a sudden, this good man, this godly man, who had served the Lord as, as well as he could, when confronted face to face with the glory of God, was very painfully aware of how, un, how sinful he was. In Job chapter 42, verses 5 and 6, after Job had gone through his very painful experience and his friends kicked him in the teeth for it, and then Job trying to justify himself before, before his friends, Basically tried to confront God, saying, oh, I wish I could, I could justify myself. I would argue my, my point to God, and he would believe what I said. And so for, for 12 chapters, God cross-examines Job. Where were you when I created the world? Tell me. Do you know about this? Do you know about that? Do you know about the other thing? Can you even begin to express even some of the simplest things that I've done? And what's Job's response? I have heard of thee by the ear, and now I have seen thee. Wherefore, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. He could not even begin to stand up before God. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 17, we see the beloved apostle who was so intimate and so close with the Lord Jesus that he felt the freedom to lay his head on Jesus' breast at the Last Supper. But when he saw the resurrected Lord in his glory, he fell at his feet as one dead. That's the glory of the God of the universe. That's the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ both before and in Revelation, after the resurrection. Not only is God glorious, but He's also self-sufficient. That is, He has no needs. God is never lacking anything as far as fellowship is concerned. He or sustenance. He's never hungry. He's never thirsty. 
He's never sleepy or lacking anything. He's not dependent on anything outside of himself to keep himself alive or even to accomplish any of his desires. Sometimes I often uh, shake my head at a lot of missionary appeal, making it sound that as, that as if God is helpless and, and unless you uh, do your part, God's whole plan will fall apart in shambles. Well, I sure am glad God doesn't depend on me because I fail him far too often. On the flip side of that same coin, there's nothing that we can do to improve God or supply anything to Him. Sometimes we get the exalted opinion of ourselves that we're somehow important to God. Or we're necessary to Him. We have to be very careful about that because God does love us and God is revealing every aspect of His nature through us. So in that sense, we are important to God but necessary to Him. God existed from all eternity without us and He can continue to exist for all eternity. But another thing about God, He has absolute freedom from the presence of sin. And all sin's fruit. Imagine having no sin at all in your presence. Or, or any of the corruption that sin causes. To not be touched or affected in any way by the recognition of sin. Can, you, can we even begin to conceive of that? One of my favorite authors, and uh, I have had, uh, as Pastor Terry has had, the blessed privilege of sitting under this man's ministry, John Whitcomb. John Whitcomb has a uh, illustration that he uses fairly often. And, and when I mentioned it to Pastor, he, Pastor was very familiar with it, so he uses it over and over again. He says, sometimes I, I look in my office and I have an aquarium there. And he says, does that fish in that aquarium know he's wet? No. Take him out of that aquarium and he'll know what dryness is and then he'll know that he's wet. You and I are totally immersed in a sinful, nat in a sinful nature and a sinful culture. We don't know what holiness is all about. We get snatches and glimpses of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and that we can begin to understand something, but to really know what sin is. We'd have to really know what holiness is. And we don't have that. God has that. Again, imagine having no sin at all in your presence or any of the corruption that sin causes. Not to be touched or affected in any way by the recognition of sin. Never becoming depressed or disheartened by passing events. Never seeing the results of sin, which is, which is the curse. Never seeing the decay of your surroundings or of your body. And those of you who are over 40 know what I'm talking about. Those of you who are under 40, just wait your turn. You'll get there. Never feeling the pain of disease or age. Never feeling the frustration of forgetfulness. I tease Joni all the time because when she's wrapping presents, the tape or the scissors just vanish. They run away. They'll, they'll, they'll be, the scissors will be walking along the carpet somewhere and where did I put this? Or, or her, she'll have her teacup and they'll put it down. And Where did I put my teacup? It's never around. Well, that's the way life is. I could say the same thing about myself, but uh, you put things down and you, never, you, you don't, want to see the my desk there's and and Joni's just sort of rubbing her head there i i have a sign above my desk that says a clean desk is a sign of a sick mind but just think of God, having all knowledge, never being surprised by an unexpected event or fearing the lack of ability to handle a circumstance. God never wonders what will happen next or what tomorrow holds. He never has any anxiety or fear of any kind. The devil does not alarm him. And although he cares for his own, he never frets about them. What do you and I do whenever we're expecting a loved one at a certain point in time and they're overdue? Particularly if the weather's bad and they're driving. We fret about them, right? And sometimes... Rightly so. God doesn't. Number five, God enjoys the unqualified adoration of the entire heavenly host. 
He rightly is the center of the universe. Everything revolves around Him. And everything is in obedience to His command. And that's what Jesus enjoyed. That's what Jesus experienced prior to His incarnation. That and a whole lot more. But notice back in Philippians, verse 7. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in likeness of men. Literally, it says he emptied himself. He emptied himself of his right to independently act as God. In, uh, in verse, the end of verse 6, he said, it does not consider equality with God something to be grasped. That's really a, it's an interesting phrase in, in the Greek. It, it actually has two meanings. It can mean something to be, to reach out and grasp, to grab a hold of, or it could mean something to tenaciously hold on to. And I prefer the latter translation of that. Jesus did not think equality with the Father to be something to be tenaciously held on to. But all these things that we we're talking about, he emptied himself of. His transcendent glory was veiled while on earth. So much so that there was nothing about him that looked extraordinary. Isaiah 53, 2. He hath no form nor comeliness, that when we should see him, we should desire him. He, he just looked like the average guy. So somebody who would not pay any attention wouldn't think anything twice about him. Although he did reveal his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, for the most part that was veiled. As far as his self-sufficiency is concerned, all of a sudden he became desperately dependent on his own creation. He was dependent on the woman who he had created to give him birth and sustenance. He was, create, he was dependent on the man he had created to guide and protect his family. He was dependent on the earth <clears throat> with its stores of grain and, and food to provide food and sustenance for him as he grew. He was dependent on the stones of his house to provide shelter, on the plants and animals to provide clothing, and on the earth itself to provide air to breathe. And because he was human, fully human, he particularly would feel the physical pains of hunger, of thirst, 
of cold, of heat, and lack of every kind. Just like you and I. As far as freedom from sin, imagine leaving the glory of heaven and entering into a smelly, dirty old barn. He would learn and feel disease, though he himself probably did not ever get sick. He would know the family tragedy of losing a loved one because by the time of his public ministry, it was obviously his father was no longer with them. He would know the teasing and torment of sinful children. He would feel the animosity and rejection of his own siblings and those he came to save. He would have vicious lies told about him and suffer the hatred from those he knew were hypocrites. As far as omniscience is concerned, he would be dependent on whatever the Father chose to reveal to him. He could be in the middle of a crowd and somebody touch him, and he could literally say, who touched me? He could say to his disciples, no man knoweth the time of my coming, not even the Son of Man, but just the Father. Because he had taken that bit of knowledge and put it away. He had to be completely and totally dependent on the Father in order to handle whatever challenges that day brought to him. Just as we do. Consciously depending on his Father. And as far as the worship of heaven is concerned... He came to total ignominy. For the most part, he was ignored in his life. Most of his siblings hated him. Can you imagine growing up with a perfect older brother? Mom and dad love him best. Never says anything bad. He's always obedient, kissing up. Can, it's no wonder they hated him. Because they were sinners and he was not. Even during his public ministry, the majority who professed allegiance to him were only looking for what they could get rather than how they could express their love for him. Scripture states that he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Finally, 
He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. In other words, he had every opportunity placed in front of him to sin, just like you and I do. Every opportunity in the world to sin, but the enticement never welled up inside him. As Paul says, then when uh, lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. That process never welled up within the Lord Jesus. Even though externally he had every opportunity to sin that you and I do. That's what he gave up. And we could go on and on and on about it. But turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sakes he became poor, that you through his poverty might be rich. How much more could we think about and add to this list of everything that he gave, that he gave up? And why? Why did he do it? There's only one reason, because he is gracious. He saw our need and deemed it more important to meet that need rather than to continue in the conditions that he had. And this is what love is. The giving up for the benefit of that other person. Whenever you hear John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him, in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do not think about overwhelming emotions. That's not what the verse is talking about. Quite literally, to trans that, translate that verse, it says, Thus, God loved the world, period. He gave His only begotten Son. That second phrase is the, the epitome of, or I should say the expression of the love of God. It's not an emotion. It's an action. All that he put away, all that he suffered here, was for our benefit. Once we're in heaven, which one of us would want to come back and live on this earth? 
He not only volunteered to do it, to come to this earth, but he knew full well what would take place once he got here. He would take all these the sins on himself. And not only that, he would bear the wrath of God against those sins that justice might be served. That's what Christian love is. And we're to be like Christ. Lessons for our lives. Number one. Take the time. Don't think, well, I didn't have time. You will never have time to do this. You must take the time to reflect on all that Jesus did for us. Let your heart be enraptured with love and gratitude for the Lord Jesus. Again, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. <coughs> what we talked about here is just the tiniest infinitesimal portion of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gift of himself to us. We owe all the gratitude that we can muster and much more for such a gift that we have received. Number two. Again, half of what Jesus suffered I haven't mentioned. I can't even conceive of. Thank Him. Simple as that. Here's, a, here's an exercise. Here's an interesting thing to think about. Have you ever thought what life would be like if Jesus had never come? If God had never revealed truth in His Word? Think of the most de debased animalistic activity that humans can express. Think about people who have lived for centuries and centuries and centuries without the revelation of, of the Word of God. How debased that their cultures become. Has anybody ever read the book Peace Child by Don Richardson? In here. It's an interesting book. And it very much expresses what happens to a culture when it, when it uh, leaves Christ. The greatest thing in the world that you can do 
in this culture is deceive somebody into thinking they're your friend and then kill them and eat them. It's called fattening them for, with friendship. And when Brother Richardson went to this tribe and presented, finally learned their language and presented the gospel to them, who was the hero? Judas. Because he was able to deceive the Lord with a kiss. What a wonderful thing. What a hero. I won't fill you in with the rest of it. That's just a tickler. Go out and get the book. Peace Child by Don Richardson. By the way, most of those people in that tribe are saved now. But think of living a life in a culture like that. And then after the horrors of such a life, spending eternity in hell. Thank God for His unspeakable gift. Number three, understand that every good gift and every perfect gift that we have ever received is a token of the grace of Almighty God. Is everybody comfortable? I'm glad everybody is well-dressed. Everybody is breathing, breathing in and out. It's all because God is gracious to us. As we continue in this Christmas season, remember that all the true, what the true gift is. List all the presents you received this Christmas. List all the other blessings that you have, including health and strength and family. And finally, of course, salvation. And then look at that list and ask yourself, of that entire list, which one of them will you not someday lose? And you eliminate everything in your life except one. And that is your salvation. Don't hold so tightly to the material things that someday you are going to lose. The things of this earth, including health, including strength, vitality. Focus on the one thing you will never lose. And that's your relationship to Christ. Number four, if you or I are not willing to give of ourselves, to give up our pleasures and desires for the benefit of, of somebody else, then we have no right to say we have the love of Christ dwelling in us. God purposely 
gives to some people an abundance of things. Then he, and he gives purposely, he gives lack to others. And then brings the two of them together so that those that he has given abundance to, not so they can hoard it, but that they can give it. He lets them know of the needs of the other. He does this to give us the opportunity, the blessed opportunity to do just what Jesus did. Go out of our way to minister to others. And this doesn't merely have to do with material things, but service. How many times do we have a plea about nursery workers or Sunday school help. And I'm sure Rob would love to have help with the, with the youth group. Opportunities of service. Yeah, that means we have to go out of our way to do these things. And believe me, I'm preaching to myself as much as everybody else. Finally, number five. This is for somebody who maybe never in their life have come to the point where they know they need salvation. That this whole thing about Christianity is something that is a mystery to them. Why did, you know, Jesus, yeah, we, it's fine, Jesus is a baby, that's great, and, and this whole church thing is just, well, mom and dad uh, wants me to come. But you've never come to the point where you've known, I've offended a holy God. I deserve his outraged wrath, but Christ came to take that upon himself so that he might be able to forgive me and come to the point where I throw myself at on the forgiveness of God. Have you done that? It is my prayer that if you have not, to take the opportunity even this morning, speak to myself, speak to one of the other elders. I'd be glad to speak to you on that issue. Let's pray.